welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. My name is Jeannie Vitoni, and I am joined here with my colleagues and friends. I've got Tim Stein, Wendy Conquest, and Dan Drake here today. And we are talking about mindfulness and how mindfulness can help reduce anxiety, but is also very helpful in treatment ongoing. And we're going to have a special guest today named Darren Ford, and he is founder of um, the Mindfulness Centers in Southern California, working with clients and also a mindfulness academy where folks can get trained on how to bring mindfulness into their practice. All right. So, guys, do you use mindfulness work? What is your familiarity with this practice? Oh, yes. Yes. I, <laughs> I, yes. I, yes. 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 <laughs> Twofold. I mean, you know, I, I, I've been fairly open that I'm in my own recovery and I, I have found mindfulness to be so essential as a recovery tool for myself, um, you know, getting sober, maintaining sobriety and then moving into the recovery uh, of life, uh, being being present, being mindful, so important. Uh, and then I also use it so extensively in the work that I do with my clients Sometimes it's very overt. Hey, let's talk about mindfulness. Let's talk about mindfulness meditation. Let's here's some resources that you can use to move in that direction. But sometimes it's much more subtle than that. It's just like, okay, well, you know, you're future tripping. Let's get back to what's going on in the here and the now, which is really kind of sort of walking them into a, let's be mindful about what's going on right now and not going to the future, even if I don't label it as mindfulness. I, I love mindfulness. I'm so excited to, to talk to Darren about this today. Uh, and so, yes, do I use it all over the place? Yes. <laughs> what about you guys, Dan, Wendy? Wendy, you want to go? Sure. Uh, so I, I'm really happy that we're talking about this topic because I'm really invested in hearing Darren's definition of mindfulness. Um, if I say to any client, oh, are you mindful? They're going to say, oh, yeah, of course I am. And so it, it's, it's almost like saying, are you a nice person in some ways? Um, so no one really wants to say, no, I'm not aware and mindful. Um, but I think it has a much deeper meaning than that. And so I'm really wanting to explore that with, with Darren. Um, and especially this piece of when we are emotionally activated um, with trauma or uh, some overwhelming uh, stimuli that's happening. How how are you supposed? To, and I'm using mindful as maybe being present in the moment. Um, how do you do that when your brain is in survival mode? So I'm really curious to hear what Darren uh, says about that. Um, I, I will say I'm consistently giving clients tools to become more self aware. And so that's another piece is mindfulness, the same thing as self-awareness or not. So, um, so I would say, yes, of course, I'm in, in, um, encouraging clients to be more, I guess what I, what I say to clients, I want you to know your mind. If I, if anything else, I want you to know how your mind works really, really well. Um, so I don't know if that's the same thing or not, but I'm, I I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to find out. Yeah, me too. I was curious, actually. I think curiosity is the big word for me because I know I can say for myself that the things that the self judgments that come up in my own head or some things I hear from my clients, you know, the way they speak to themselves, uh, you know, they label their thoughts or their feelings, or their reactions, I think is so 
so damaging. So I can, I've, I've been there too. So I think this curiosity of, of what's happening for me in this moment and, you know, not taking a judgmental stance has been super helpful for me and for clients, but I'm curious, I am curious because I'm, I'm, you know, mindfulness is such a buzzword out there. So how are we defining it? You know, how can we all, can we have a similar language around it? I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in that. It really is the buzzword of the last couple of years. And, and my guess is because it's so effective, but sometimes when I talk to clients about it in their mind, they go to, that means I'm sitting on the ground. My legs are crossed. I'm saying, ohm a bunch of times and I'm sitting there for an hour, you know? And I'm like, that's actually not the same thing. I'm, I would guess that parts of that meditation, deep breathing and, and emptying out your, your thoughts are part of it, but I think there's more to it and there's so much science behind it and I'm just not fluent on the science, but I know the science is being done. So, all right, well, let's get Darren in here because he's been working on this, practicing this and quite the expert. Ta-da! Welcome, Darren. Welcome, Darren. Hi, everyone. Thank Hi, you so how are much you all? for joining us today. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to join you. I'm very grateful. Mm, it's our our opportunity can you help us with this term mindfulness and how people are defining it these days? Yeah, I was actually finding myself as I was listening in while you guys were talking, just getting so excited. I had to take a few deep breaths and calm myself because I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I can talk about that. you know. Um, but I think before we even talk about mindfulness, uh, we have to talk about mind. We hear people all the time say, Oh, be mindful, but nobody really defines what is the mind. And so the way uh, that that really in mindfulness circles or, you know, that we look at the mind is we look at the mind as a sense organ. So just like your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth and your skin, you have the mind and the mind takes in all of the data from those other sense organs, organizes it, coordinates it, reflects on the past and spits out a hypothesis about the future. That hypothesis is never 100% correct. How do we know that it's never 100% correct? Because we only see 10% of the light spectrum, right? So visually, we can never take in all of the data in the universe, but we can. it, it does a pretty good job of making approximations. One thing though, is it's always skewed by the lens of the past. Remember that reflecting on the past part? So that past skews the hypothesis that the mind creates. And so what we want to do when we're being mindful is take a moment to separate ourselves from those thoughts or those hypotheses and ask ourselves, is that really a skillful thing to do right now? The difficult part is, is that we, in, especially in today's uh, society, a hypothesis comes out, we identify with it, and we're off to the races before we even contemplate, was it a skillful thing to do? And that right there is one of the driving for one of the major driving forces of addiction, and why mindfulness is so essential and powerful with addiction. The side effect of giving yourself that space is you feel. And that's why emotions and allowing ourselves to be present with the discomfort and growing distress tolerance and all of these things is such a vital component and why people struggle so much with mindfulness. Can I ask you a question? There's a phrase we use a lot with our clients of 
teaching them to ask themselves, is this true? Like they, they create an interpretation, they create a narrative about whatever's happening or the other person. And we're teaching them to ask themselves, is that true? Is that kind of what you're talking about by, is this a skillful, I forgot the word you use, skillful action? Yeah. Um, yes. The, the reason, and, and language is a wonderful technology, right? So another aspect, one of the eight domains of recovery in, in uh, mindfulness or in the MBAP uh, bias, if you are, the MBAP program, right, is the mindful use of language. And the only reason that we would avoid the word true if we could, not that it's wrong, there's, you know, but because it creates this binary interpretation or can within the site, within the mind, right? Of, oh, true, untrue. Mm-hmm. And so we, we would just augment that a little bit to, you know, is this, is this really what will get me where I want to go? Or is this really what would be skillful right now in this moment? Or is this loving? Is this a, you know, does this have love or compassion tied to it? Mm-hmm. Um, I love um, what, what Dan said about uh, curiosity, because that's one of the skillful, what we would call mind states that, that uh, we help clients uh, cultivate is to be more curious about things and, and to be more curious about what, why am I coming up? Why is my mind projecting this idea? Why is my mind wanting to make this decision? What's actually driving that, right? And, and then moving to that, emotion because emotions drive thoughts thoughts coalesce into beliefs beliefs manifest into behaviors behaviors are practiced into habits so move back to that emotion and then find a way to be present with it until it changes because the really good news is no feeling is final mm-hmm. right can you, can you see that progression one more time i loved how you just you synthesized right. this all in one right. you know thoughts, phrase emotions. loved it Oh, yes. Yeah. So emotion. And, and by the way, this is also reflected in cognitive uh, neurocognitive development, right? With the uh, emotive centers developing first and then reflex centers and then the prefrontal cortex coming online last, right? So first we have emotions and emotions drive thoughts. Thoughts will coalesce into a belief system, into beliefs. Beliefs manifest into behaviors and behaviors are practiced into habits. And habits become our destiny. So if we're not attuned to any part of that causal chain of events, we wake up one day and go, how did I let myself get here? How could I have done this? Which is the story all of us here in the therapeutic room with addicts, with identified addicts, right? They come in and they say, how did I let this happen to me? You know, the other piece when you're talking about that that I make up, I'd be curious on your con- your perspective on this, is that in that chain of events, because the human brain wants to become as efficient as possible. And so the human brain tries to make things as automatic as possible and to be able to predict as much as possible. And so one of the things that happens as we're going along that chain is that events that happened or experiences that we happened that we had in a specific situation, whether that's our family of origin or or a past relationship or something, suddenly become laid out as the rule for life in general, rather than this is what happened here and it might happen differently in a different situation or with different people. Absolutely, that is vitally important. So 
basically what begins to happen, right, is the causes and conditions that that helped our mind to develop and then also programmed the the um, brain, right? So we look, think about the brain as wetware. So, you know, like a computer has hardware, the brain is wetware. The mind is the software, right? So like um, Windows runs computers, right? It's not the actual hardware of the computer. The computer is the physical object, but the software that that allows everything to be presentable to our interpretation, that's, that's the equivalent of our mind. And so that software is programmed by the causes and conditions of our lives. And then because the mind is a pattern recognition machine, and because the mind wants to create a sense of certainty, then what happens is it scans the environment to find familiar patterns and then grasps onto those. And then, you know, because that's familiar, that's the response that's driven in us as a, as a person uh, over and over again. And the more it gets solidified, and that's why it, that's where that idea of it becomes our destiny, right? And this is why we have people who, uh, when, like partners that will get into relationships and they'll say, I don't understand how, how could I have married an addict? My father's an addict. I should have known better. And it's because they didn't have that awareness, right? Maybe, maybe not always, but of, of their mind's eye of how the mind seeks familiarity over uncertainty. And I think it was M. Scott Peck who said, mental health is the absolute commitment to reality, no matter what the cost. And the truth is, is reality is uncertainty. At its core, reality is, we don't know what's gonna happen in any situation. And so the more comfortable we are in that, uh, in that uncertainty, the more skillfully we can respond to the environment that's around us. That wow. sounds so, I mean, it's so profound. So, and so simple yet so difficult. I mean, even as you said yes. that, I know this is like not a new concept for me. And I already started getting anxious when you said reality <laughs> is uncertainty. And I'm like, yes, I know that. And yet my, a lot of my drive is to go to certainty rather than embrace you know, chaos and uncertainty. So I'm just, just aware, even as you said that, of just my own nervous system activated. Yeah. Yeah. Dear and I, it's, it's the piece of, um, I, my, my belief is that we're hardwired for continuity and consistency. And so to, to, <laughs> um, to, to, oh boy, um, <laughs> I love that laugh. When that laugh comes out, she's battling him with something. Yeah, <laughs> and and the 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 reality is is change is inevitable. How how to get comfortable with that though? Yeah, well, I think you know there's a wonderful saying, and actually, I think I learned this saying. Uh, it's a it's actually technically a Buddhist psychology saying, but I think I I learned it from my training with Dr. Patrick Carnes, but he. Uh, Oh, no, no, no. I think I it, it wasn't from him. Uh, but anyways, uh, if it's in the way, it is the way. Mm -hmm. And so that fear that arises when we contemplate the uncertainty or maybe resentment for the fact that we can't have things the way that they that we always want them or, you know, shame because we expected things to be a certain way forever. 
whenever that discomfort arises, that's where we employ the curiosity, a, a mindset of curiosity and move closer to it and invite it in, or we have a compassionate uh, mind state where we invite it in and, and we nurture ourselves in response to the discomfort. So instead of shying away or trying to rid ourselves from the discomfort, we move closer to the discomfort and allow ourselves to be present with it, abiding and trusting in ourselves that in time, that one, we'll, we're, we're going to be okay, that we can survive with that discomfort. And listen, this is not easy. Um, but then at the same time, that it won't be that way forever, regardless of what our mind tells us. Mm -hmm. So let me ask, working definition of mindfulness uh, is, so what would you use? Because I'm hearing some different pieces from you. And um, what would you say the working definition is for regular folks? Yeah, so, um, and I won't be able to give the quote exactly, but I think John Kabat-Zinn gives a wonderful um, definition of mindfulness, which is to be uh, aware of what's presenting itself in the here and now without reaction, without judgment, and without um, any type of behavioral or impulsive reaction, mm. right? So to just pause, right? And to, to, to really just allow ourselves to, you know, be present with that. I love, I'm a runner, so I love to run. And, you know, running never gets easier. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, right? However, our ability to be present with the distress that the body creates in response to running increases. And there is no, uh, no example I could give from my mind's biases that's a better example of mindfulness than that. Mindfulness never gets like, oh, yeah, it's easy now. Um, yet the, 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 intensity of the discomfort that arises as we practice it decreases and our ability to pause and be present and compassionate with ourselves increases and that is a also what i call the ripple effect what happens as a result of that is then we can be present with others in a non-reactive non-judgmental compassionate way but it starts with first nurturing the ability to be present with our own emotional distress or with our own relationship with our with our mind and then we can be present with others minds uh because the truth is is that when somebody's in that reactionary space maybe a, a traumatized partner is yelling um or a identified addict is flooded with their shame and they're yelling right um that's not that that's the mind that's not necessarily who they are. That's the effect of their causes and conditions. That's the side effect of not being able to be present with the emotion of shame or the emotion of fear generally, right? And so if one can be present with those, then what they can say is, you know, I really want to yell at you right now because you've betrayed me. However, I understand that what's driving that is I'm terrified because I don't know what to believe anymore which is a far more skillful way to express what's going on than one driven through reaction. Mm -hmm. 
So I have a question um, because I can almost, you know, hear and feel partners saying, wait a minute, are you saying then I should be mindful and go with what the addict's presenting if he's gaslighting me or she's gaslighting me? I just am mindful of it and don't react and right, that kind of thing. I can hear, I can hear them. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so when, when does then the mindfulness go into perhaps making a, a mindful decision? Yeah, that's beautiful. And what I would share uh, first is uh, whenever anybody's being gaslit by another person, no, don't go along with it. Absolutely not. Trust yourself. Trust, trust that inner compass that's telling you this, there, there's something awry here. Um what we would do in the mindfulness, though, is we'd be able to observe the gaslighting, notice what we're feeling, and then say in response, you know, now that you've said your little thing, whatever you've said, um, A, I feel, you know, it's very clear you're gaslighting me. B, I'm angry about that. And as a response, See, I'm going to follow the boundaries that I've asserted when you're going to get when you when I said I will not be gaslit anymore. And here are those boundaries. And that's what I'm employing. But we can do that in a way that isn't bad for our nervous system and isn't bad, uh, unhealthy, I should say, not bad for our body. You know, it is genuinely unhealthy physiologically for us to scream and yell and get hooked by that reactivity. We all do it, but the side effect physiologically in the present moment is, you know, uh, all kinds of um, things, right? And that this is what leads to heart attacks, to strokes, to all of these other things uh, is the stress response, which is, you know, that increased blood pressure that, you know, um, posturing, all of those things that that really physiologically um, are destructive for ourselves. So it's not, by the way, it's not like, oh, okay, partner, be compassionate for the addict. No, it's be compassionate for you. So how, you know, so how do people get there? I, and, and I want, I, I've got all those things, but I mean, I know it's so much more than just saying, you know, you just need to let go of your fears and let go of what you think is going to happen in the future and get in, in the here and the now and just trust your gut and go from there. It's going to be fine. Yeah. How, 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 I mean, the people that are listening to this and they're saying, that sounds great. No idea how to get there. Yeah. How to get there. So uh, that is a wonderful question, right? And uh, what I would say is we're all on, you know, I've never met anybody who's floating on their cushion. And if you ever do meet anybody who's floating on their cushion is just forever mindfulness, please let me know because I'm going to be able to, I'm going to have to hire them to teach me. That being said, I think first and foremost, we have to recognize if we're going to start practicing mindfulness and we haven't been practicing it, then we have to first offer ourselves compassion that it is just that, a practice. Mm -hmm. And if we've been practicing living our life in a reactive manner, um, for 20, 30, 40 years, at least give ourselves a third of that time to get habituated to not living that way. So that's kind of the first thing is to approach it with compassion. The second thing is, 
is you don't need to uh, sit on a on a excuse me on a zafu or a mat and and sit there in meditation for an hour a day. You can if you want to. You know, I I started that way. I don't do that that way anymore. But I used to do that. That you know, but you don't have to do it that way. And in fact, it's probably far better if you incorporate it or integrate it, weave it into your everyday life. Right. So simple, small ways you can do when you sit down in your car before you turn the key or push the button to start it, set the keys in your lap or the fob on the side thing and just take a couple deep breaths. And what you could do is what's called four two seven breaths, which is four seconds in through your nose. Then you hold for two seconds. And then you exhale through your mouth for seven. And you just continue to do this process for maybe 30 seconds. Even that is a wonderful beginning of the practice. Um, and you can build on that, right? And why do I oftentimes hear people say, well, why my breath? Well, it doesn't have to be your breath, but we suggest your breath because it's something you always have with you. You know? Uh, there are certain types of meditation that have concentration meditation. So you focus on a flame of a candle or an, the light of an incense. There's all kinds of, of different types of meditations. But these types, just, just inviting awareness of our breath is a step in the right direction. And then we just continue to nurture the time frame that we do that. And maybe we do it now instead of... Um, sitting in our car, maybe we park our car far out in the parking lot. And then when we're walking to the car, we're noticing our breaths and noticing what the feet feel like as they walk across the pavement, right? What the weight distribution feels like in our hips. And we're just attuning to the here and now as we walk to the car. These are things we do every day that we have an opportunity to invite mindfulness in. So when people say, I don't have time for, for mindfulness awareness right well we do you know we have time for it it's just a matter of of learning how to focus our mind in a way that cultivates more awareness and more mindfulness so these are very small ways that we can do it but that have a lot of impact they really do it seems like the mind will dismiss it and say oh 30 seconds that's ridiculous that won't make any difference but it does so and you, I want to ask right there, because these were really good concrete examples. Thank you. And then the question I want is, and how does it help someone? Because That's wonderful. Like, how does mindfulness help? So I, I'm in the here and now. How does that, and, and I have all kinds of ideas, but of course, I'd like to hear from you. How does mindfulness help people? Yeah. So, um, there are two ways that, that I'd like to approach this, and I just want to kind of admit that I tend to nerd out on research sometimes, so if I get too <laughs> into the weeds, do not hesitate to interrupt me here, okay? All right. Um, but I, I really appreciate um, Richie Davison. He was, in 2014, I think he was uh, named one of the uh, 10 most influential men in the world by Time Magazine. He's a neurocognitive psychologist that has done decades of research uh, 
funded uh, in part by the by the Dalai Lama. He's out of the University of uh, Wisconsin. And so he has spent, you know, he's the one that's done all of these fMRI studies of the brain and all of these things. And so there are several things. First, what we have noticed is that the in the prefrontal cortex of people who are Olympic meditators, there's actually more gray matter. And that gray matter basically means that uh, cognitive processing is happening faster. Gray is the reflection of what's called myelin sheaths on the axons, which is an insulator that allows for uh, neurons to communicate faster. And an axon is part of a neuron. And so, and that is far more dense in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our mind that's responsible for kind of reasoning, judgment, noticing the consequences of our choices, all of those things. And so they compared people who don't meditate with these Olympic meditators, and they found that the Olympic meditators have more gray matter. So that was really kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Could that be a result of meditation? So then they took a cohort and they had them sit in meditation and they measured the gray matter density. And they found that just after eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation, the prefrontal cortex was had greater density of gray matter in it than uh, before when the people are when the uh, cohort before the cohort started meditating and then what they did was they also measured their reactivity so before and after and what they found is the magnitude the amount of intensity that their reactivity showed itself to be to have was less in the meditated group and the ability for the neurons to re to recalibrate because after your neuron fires there's this time where it has to kind of recondition itself so that it can be you can fire again and that that amount of time was shorter mm. and so now th that sounds very complex how does that manifest into behaviors well what it means is that the people had less reactivity or less attachment to their the hypotheses that their mind created and a greater ability to pause and ask themselves if i react in this way is that going to be the most skillful choice is that going to give me the responses i want reasoning and judgment and then say no that probably isn't a good one mind go back to the drawing board let's come up with another idea okay and then, oh, okay, what if I do this one instead? Okay, that one will work. And then they had a greater ability to respond that way, to respond in a more skillful way or a less reactively driven way. And so that's one way that it helps is that it actually does help people to be present uh, with things like um, desire, wanting to act out, cravings, um, anger, shame, fear, all of these different emotions that usually drive these impulsive responses, people have a greater ability to pause and be present with. And this is why it is so vital for people who struggle with addiction and also people who've experienced betrayal trauma or traumatic events, post-traumatic, who are struggling post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, panic attacks, um, you know, and this is why in all of those areas, there have been numerous studies that have found that it's been helpful. It's phenomenal um, that it changes brain matter. 
Yeah, it's amazing, huh? Wow. Yeah, and, and not just there. I mean, it's it, there's you know all kinds of studies that have been done that show it's not just in the prefrontal cortex. And by the way, this also um, supports the idea that yes, of course, biology or neurons influence behavior. However, mindfulness can influence the construction of neurons. Right. And so no longer like in the, when I was in, you know, giving away my age here, but when I was in college, Hey, you had the brain you had, and that was it. And now we know that's completely wrong mm -hmm. that our brain is, and you know, is completely malleable and can change to a great extent over time with consistent practice of things like compassion, things like mindfulness, uh, you know, compassion focused mindfulness or, you know, curiosity, curiosity focused mindfulness or these types of ideas. And, yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry. I was just saying so cool. <laughs> oh. I want to remind our, our listeners yeah. that you're listening to conversations on sex, addiction, and relationships. And we have Darren Ford here today, who's talking about mindfulness. Guys, what are you thinking? Listening to this amazing information, I'm curious about the group here. I was curious, something that um, I love it. I thank you so much, and you've you've boiled down some really complicated information into a you know really understandable way. Um, so I get clients every now and then. I mean, I don't I don't think anyone's going to protest and say no, you're wrong. I, I mean, every, I think everyone's going to say yeah, that makes sense. But I have some clients. And, I, and it's usually those that have some really complex trauma that have a real hard time doing a, you know, slowing down and doing a meditation. They just, they may try it and it floods them. They get, you know, trauma. Like, so I'm curious, how do, what do we do in those situations with those clients that are like, meditation doesn't work for me or, you know, this, these practices don't work for me. Yeah. So I think that also kind of uh, talks about a much bigger question is, and is one reason why I created the MBAT certification was because um, this idea that we want to make sure that we are approaching the client in the most informed way possible. We really need to listen to a client who is saying that mm -hmm. when a client says, you know what, this isn't working for me. That is very important because that is a defense mechanism that they're utilizing to say, I, this, this way, this, this approach, this type of mindfulness, it's too flooding for me. And it's too much like my, I'll unravel if I do this. And they, they aren't, they don't, maybe they're not aware that that's what they're saying, but that's what that idea of this discomfort is too much. I cannot do this. And so we would employ different modalities, right? So we might employ mindful eating where for that person, what we would do is we would have them try, we would ask them, so how fast do you eat a meal more often than not? They're going to say, well, pretty fast. Like, okay, well, just for this week, just time yourself on average, how long it takes you to eat a meal. And then let's say it takes some 15 minutes. And we say, great, let's try to stretch that out to, to 25 minutes this time. And, you know, why don't you just notice or count how many times you chew something before you swallow it and try to, you know, try to nurture that out to 25 minutes and see what arises for you and just keep a little journal on the side. It doesn't have to be a big book, just, oh, I thought this was stupid or, you know, this was ridiculous. I don't have time for this. Whatever it is, just write that out, bring that to therapy and let's talk about it. And then, you know, you do that for a couple of weeks and then you extend it 
maybe to 30 minutes, right? And you continue to, to step it out this way. And that will start to invite them to have a, to strengthen their distress tolerance muscle. That's one way. Um, another way in those cases is, and this is actually what started me running. You know, I, I come to mindfulness. In fact, I, I wrote in, in my book, uh, Awakening to the Sexually Addicted Mind, I, I wrote that when I first started meditating, the first time I went in, uh, I was, I sat down in the front because I was going to be the best student. And, you know, I was sitting there and, and back then they, they didn't, it wasn't, mindfulness wasn't like it is, like everything was traditional, like Buddhist, you know, kind of bias. And so the Buddhist monk came out, she said, a nun came out, she sat on the, on the Zafu in front of me. And, uh, you know, she started to introduce the meditation and my leg was just vibrating like this. And, and my mind was going and I started to panic and I started to, and I raised my hand. I was like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, oh my gosh. And, and I was just going hundred miles an hour and she just reached over and it was one of the most incredibly powerful moments of my life. She just touched my knee just gently. And my whole, all of the stress just exited my body in an instant. And she said, Darren, I'm not too sure of very many things, but one thing I'm absolutely certain of is nobody, nobody has ever died from meditating. You're going to be okay. And I laughed and, you know, and, and I survived. But the idea there was that, you know, we want to acknowledge that distress and we want to invite people to build that distress tolerance muscle over time. And this is where it, where as a therapist, we really have to be in our scope of practice and have, and be on top of our skill set when it comes to meditation. You know, some types of meditation are better for some clients than others. Um, transcendental meditation might be a great tool for some clients, but not a great tool for other clients, right? I don't use a lot of transcendental meditation with people who uh, who are really into compulsive fantasy or pornography use. Why? Because transcendental meditation involves, right, taking yourself into a, into a visualization process. So we don't, we don't necessarily want to strengthen that. However, if that is the uh, only thing that they can, that that client is able to connect to, let's do it. And then I'll move them, transition them over to different types of mindfulness meditation. And so we really, really need to be in our scope of practice. And I, I would add um, one thing that a lot of clients do. So we kind of have that two reactions, right? We have a client who says, I can't do this. Or we have the other client says, oh my gosh, I did this. This is the best thing ever. I'm going to go to a two-week Vipassana retreat tomorrow, <laughs> right? And that's not a good idea either. Because what they have found, believe it or not, for people who have experienced trauma, the research shows that the propensity for suicidal ideation and suicide grows or increases after a two-week Vipassana meditation retreat for people who've experienced trauma because they're alone with their mind for that two weeks. And if their mind is that harsh, critical judge and they can't separate from it, then they get into a very dark space. So we want to make sure before and you know what do addicts do they go from one extreme to the other right it, it, right we go from and i say we because you know i i'm in recovery myself so you know i went from you know 
total, complete, out of control to, okay, now I'm going to be the most controlled person ever. And, you know, this is great. And obviously that doesn't work. And so when people first in, are introduced to mindfulness and they start to, it starts to get hold. They, they like, they're like, oh my gosh, I can see it now. They, especially if they're identified addicts, they can move very quickly into this. I need to go to a 30 day retreat or I'm, you know, I'm going to go to a monastery. And that's not always the best option for the traumatized mind. You know, <clears throat> when you're saying that, what, what comes to mind for me is I often talk about on a sobriety, from a sobriety place, we have to start with the get sober, stay sober. And then from there, then we move into let's figure out what recovery looks like and get you in and do some of that deeper trauma work so that you can maintain this. But it's not about just heal your relationship with yourself, skip over the foundations of getting sober and staying sober. And and so I, I we, we've talked on this podcast before about what that pattern tends to look like. With with mindfulness meditation, I hear a, a similar piece. So my, my question is, what are some of those early foundation pieces of the learning about mindfulness? And then how does that transition into that later maintenance and allowing it to sort of become more integrated into your life? Well, can I just That's, ask, okay. is, it, it may not be later. I, I'm wondering okay. if the mindfulness starts early on. The gets, you know, uh, the getting sober piece. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, what one? That's a wonderful question. And yes, it uh, from from the mindfulness based addiction and trauma therapist modality. It, it certainly starts, or from a you know from a mindfulness practitioner, it starts right away. Now, I, as a therapist, I may not label it as mindfulness, but some of the things I'm doing in the in the first moments, right, of therapy is. Um, noticing and calling awareness when a client shifts. So maybe the client's telling me something and then they fold their arms or you guys can't see in the camera, but they fold their arms. Then I might just invite awareness. Oh, I'm wondering what's the emotion arising for you right now? I just, you know, because I noticed you kind of closed, closed your arms there, or I noticed you're shaking your foot, you know, Right. And I keep uh, Pia Melody's eight basic emotions chart. Mm-hmm. I keep that in foam poster size in on the wall of, of my office. And I tell everybody it's in foam because I ask clients, you know, what's the emotion arising right now so much that they're going to rip it off the wall one of these days and hit me over the head with it. You know, <laughs> but I love that one because of two things. One, somatically, it describes like, you know, so they can connect it to their body. And two, it talks about the gift. You know the gift of the emotion and if we can't find a reason why a new behavior or a new something is beneficial healthy for us it's not we're not going to be able to get traction with it um, so the first step in really inviting mindfulness for the client is just connecting them uh, to the experience of the emotional sensation their body and then offering them language to describe it that's kind of step one Right. And that's, I'm sorry. And would you use that for betrayed partners too, who have a lot of emotion going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would. Um, And the art form, I think with betrayed partners, and we have to be uh, very mindful of this, right. Is that the trauma is so uh, in, in many times, not always, but many times is so acute 
that we want to make sure to give them uh, a, a a way to regulate or or create safety for themselves um, before we just turn them straight into the wave of the emotion because it can be too too flooding too overwhelming mm -hmm. um, you know and so we kind of want to do that uh, in in twofold right um, is create awareness but then ask. The next question is, is how can you nurture and care for yourself in relationship to this? Or how can you allow yourself to, to create safety in relationship to this distress? Um, and, you know, start to focus their mind on, on generating that skill set for themselves. So as we're talking about mindfulness, Darren, I, one of the things that comes to mind is I make up that this has a lot to do not only with being present in the moment and being accepting, but developing compassion for yourself, for other people. I mean, does that fit into sort of your perspective of mindfulness and how it gets applied? Yeah, that is actually, uh, you know, so important. That is a foundational piece uh, that needs to come along with mindfulness. So, you know, being aware of our mind is one thing, but having compassion for our humanity is, a is something that is completely different. And the truth is, is we as human beings feel. There's no way that we can get away from that. We all have emotions. The thing that has probably caused more suffering in this world is the idea that's been uh, conditioned into almost all of us and all cultures that we're wrong, bad, or broken for feeling. Um, and so having compassion for ourselves in relationship to our distress, in relationship to um, our emotions is essential. You know, you, you, can't, uh, you can't judge yourself or beat yourself into a more loving relationship with yourself. It's not gonna work. And so when we talk about compassion though, there are two kind of ideas. There's destructive compassion and constructive compassion. Mm. And destructive compassion, I always think about it this way. Let's say my example is kind of you drive up to a stoplight and there's a person there with a sign that says, I'm an alcoholic. They're shaking and they say, I need a, I need a beer. Never mind why you have alcohol in your car, but you roll down your window, you pop open a beer and you hand it to them. That's destructive compassion. You've allowed them to feel better in the short run, but you've facilitated likely probably their death in the long run, right? Constructive compassion. Constructive compassion is you pull up to that stoplight, the person saying there, I need, I need a beer. You roll down your window and you say, hey, I'm not going to give you a beer, but if you get in my car, I will drive you to a treatment center and we'll get you the help that you need. They might be yelling and screaming and angry the whole time they're in your car saying, all I want is a beer. Yet if they go to the treatment center and they get help, they'll come back later and say, thank you, you saved my life. That's constructive compassion. Constructive compassion oftentimes has a a, 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 an aspect of delayed gratification. The ability to be present with our discomfort now so that we can gain the greater rewards later, right? And in order to have that, we have to have mindfulness. So compassion and mindfulness, skillful compassion and mindfulness go hand in hand. Uh, we really have to have both of them intertwined, and they they both they they're two pillars that support one another. Mm -hmm. I think 
um, there's this this interesting maybe cognitive twist. So um, a lot of partner, so a lot of addicts, when they get into recovery, they start talking about how they're starting to be compassionate towards themselves, right? And starting to have compassion for how they got to where they are. Um, the partners really don't like to hear that. Um, they, they, they really bristle around that. Um, and so if you could speak to that and then as far as um, partners, uh, potentially the difference between being compassionate and forgiveness. Yeah. And so I think, so let me take the first one second, if that's okay. Yeah. And let's talk first about forgiveness, because I think this is very vital. Um, and First, uh, we've all heard the adage, I'm sure forgiveness is, is not for another person, it's for ourselves. Um, and this is something that when I say it for a, oftentimes it can be, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, it can, a lot of people can, can have a, a little bit of reactivity to, to what I'm about to say. And I, and I understand it because I do too, but I, I think it's really an honest kind of truth that we have to align with. Um, and the, well, the first part is right. Forgiveness is, is a, it is a practice. It's not something that just happens. It is not, it is not compassion. We can have compassion for somebody, but not necessarily forgive them. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, an important distinction uh, one of uh, my close friends from high school uh, was lost in addiction and shot somebody and killed them. And at the sentencing, the victim's mother stood up and said, you know, I don't hold ill will against you. Um, I don't know if I forgive you, but I certainly have compassion for what what you have done. Um, so, you know, and I think that that was an amazing reaction. But the idea there is that we can delineate between compassion and forgiveness. Now, I think a hard part for partners is that let's say a partner says, okay, I'm agreeing to stay in this relationship and I'm going to work on forgiving you. What they have done when they make that agreement is they have made the commitment to work as skillful as they can with the really uncomfortable emotions that they have every right to feel in a manner that is skillful for the relationship and themselves. And that can be very controversial, I think, because partners, um, oftentimes when I share this with them in session, they say, well, I, I don't, I didn't agree to have to deal with all this pain. You're right, you didn't, you didn't agree when it like it was unfair that it was put on you. You were a victim and that is terrible. However, if you've chosen to stay after knowing everything, you're no longer a victim. You are here to work through. You've committed to working through that. You know, you're committed. You've committed to learning how to forgive um, those trespasses. That's the side effect of saying, I'm gonna stay here and work through this. 
it may not be what you were aware of you were agreeing to, you know, but that's, that's part of that agreement if you're going to stay in the relationship is that you find a way to work with your really uncomfortable emotions in a manner that facilitates the connection between you and your partner. Um, that's, that's what being in committed in a relationship requires. And I'm going to just say something real quick here about, and there's so many partners who are in the middle who are, I don't know if I'm going to stay in this relationship. I don't know if I'm going to leave this relationship and I'm not committing to any of that quite yet. And then that's an okay place to be as well. Absolutely. Right. And, and I would be worried if a partner didn't have a good amount of time in that space, like, oh yeah, I, no problem. I'll just forgive. It's like, okay, I don't think we have awareness of what we're actually, what's actually going on here. I could be wrong. There are some partners that I've worked with that are like, you know what? I got it. I understand it. I'm good. And it's like, okay, you know, but more often than not, that's not the case. And so bringing that mindful awareness into um, that space and that compassion focus for self is what's so vital for uh, partners in that way. Now, that second question about the addict starting to foster compassion for themselves and the partner feel, you know, and rightfully so, that's like nails on a chalkboard, right, to them. They're like, what do you mean you're trying to foster compassion for yourself? You should, you know, you're, blah, 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 right? And um, I, I think what's important there is to help the partner identify that that's the echo of their trauma and to help the addict understand and recognize that that distress that the partner is feeling is, is caused by their choices. I was going to say an echo right, of the betrayal. That's right. And they have to own that while simultaneously the partner, if, if the partner wants to come into a space of continuity with themselves or what we would term in, in mindfulness square world equanimity balance right then they're going to need to come to terms with the unfortunate and let's just face it yucky reality that they've been betrayed and that that created a wound and fair or unfair that wound is there yeah and we we've got to deal with it you know and that's regardless of whether we stay in the relationship whether we forgive our partner you know that doesn't matter as much as accepting the fact that there's a wound here that we have got to face and deal with, you know, which no partner wants to do. And right. I totally understand that. Yeah. Thank you, Darren, for being here today yeah. on our podcast and such. And if folks wanted to know more about the services you offer, what would be those websites? Um, yeah, so for uh, the mindful centers, which is, you know, our my therapy or our therapy program uh, for clients who are struggling with trauma or addiction, um, they would just go to mindful centers, that's M-I-N-D-F-U-L-C-E-N-T-E-R-S dot com. And then if uh, you're a practitioner, a clinician, and you're interested in becoming certified as a mindfulness-based addiction and trauma therapist, you would just go to tmat.com, which is www.tmaatt.com.
Perfect. Perfect. What a service you are providing to the professionals as well as clients. I really want to thank you for that work. It's really important. Thank you all so much for giving me the privilege of of being here. I'm so grateful to to all of you. Thanks for being with us, Darren. Thanks, Darren. It's great. Thank you so much. Bye, Darren. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed what you heard today or watched, because we are on YouTube also, please make sure to like us and share in all your social media avenues, Twitter, Facebook, and all the other ones I'm supposed to remember right now. (laughs) Thanks so much, everyone.